everyone. Glenn James here. Welcome to Wish You'd Known. I'm with Danny Visser. G'day, Danny. How are you? Hey, Glenn. Very well. We're joined again by Adam Crabb. G'day, Adam. Hey, Glenn. And we're going to do a deep dive into lump sum insurances and particularly some of the things that we need to be aware of when it comes to the PDS and the fine print that some people wish they would have known when they were writing the policy with their clients. So, if we can start, everyone lumps some, everyone thinks death cover, you know, it's pretty easy to pay a claim. If you're dead, you're dead. Give us my money. Yep. What are some of the details that are often overlooked with death cover, terminal illness benefits, and PDSs? All righty. So, with life insurance, death cover, terminal illness, you know, one of the things that would jump to my mind would be just the broadness of cover. So, what particular areas are likely to be excluded? And I don't mean from you know an underwriting perspective, but those that are built into that particular contract. So, in the retail space, we tend to find it's that sort of self-inflicted injury, suicide type period, for albeit for a short period. But really, when we step outside of the retail advised market, it can be quite wide and varied. Uh, we tend to find, uh, you know, in the direct space, in the group space, there can be quite a bit of variation. Uh, things like, you know, pandemic illness obviously is a very topical one at the moment with COVID. Uh, but uh, when we think about uh, it can be incarceration, it can be um, uses or illegal activities, um, alcohol, indirect uses of alcohol, uh, and a number of, you know, war, terrorism, civil unrest, etc. So, while these may not be front of mind concerns for clients, there may be those pockets who do have perhaps a wish to maybe travel um, and don't necessarily want to be unduly exposed to uh, areas of risk that they perhaps hadn't considered when they took the policy out. Yeah, so I like to talk about these things as you know hardline exclusions and soft stuff that an underwriter might add. Yep. So what I'm getting from you is uh, a retail policy the general hard exclusions would be suicide. Yep. And that's basically about it. Maybe war and terrorism, maybe, but not so much anymore. No, that's maybe applied if you were, you know, going to an area where that was particularly an increased risk. Say you were disclosing that as like a holiday. But that's more of something that the underwriter would put on. Correct. So, Correct. first and foremost, out of the gate, any of that group cover that all our clients have, that you might even have some, that default death cover has all these burned-in exclusions. That's right. Now, if we're ex- excluding things like uh, non-disclosure, uh, for course. example, yep. but you're, you're right. So, Adam, something that keeps sort of shifting and, and changing is terminal illness definitions. Can you make comment to how they are treated differently in the, um, in the self-owned versus trustee-owned policies? Yeah, so terminal illness traditionally was sitting at about a 12-month period. So if somebody was diagnosed with a specific condition and told that they're you know, likely to die in a, you know, the short term, that that would mean they'd get early access to the life insurance benefit. Now, around 2014, we saw a bit of an increase to that terminal illness duration from 12 to 24 months. So trying to really avoid, those, generous, yep. yeah, avoid those situations where clients might you know, sit with 18, 20 months left to live and actually miss out on that early access treatment. But I think from an advisor's point of view, one of the things that 
they need to be really cognizant of is that, you know, that change in law hasn't made its way across to all life insurance policies, Mm -hmm. but rather the uh, accumulated wealth of that particular super fund. So imagine in a situation, if a client was diagnosed with a condition given 18 months left to live, your first instinct might be to A, get access to that super balance and B, you know, get early access to the life insurance benefit. But I think what you need to do is really put the brakes on in that mm-hmm. situation because there can be a difference between the two, um, the two constructs, so the accumulated value and the life insurance benefit, even within the one product. So if someone was suddenly needing, you know, in that situation where, yes, they could get access to their accumulated wealth, mm-hmm. but not on the life insurance space, uh, some of the advice considerations I would have would be, well, what minimum balances they're needed to keep the life insurance active? Mm-hmm. Um, does the client need to be not only gainfully employed, but contributing into that fund to at least keep the life insurance active, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they actually are probably wanting to do the opposite, and that is stop work and get early access. So that's something I think which is an important consideration. And of course, we can see at the other end of the spectrum, there may be uh, terminal illness durations, which are quite low. Uh, I know some group contracts, when you hit about the age of 70, you know, it drops down further again to like six months. So that may not necessarily align with the client's view of, well, if I'm terminally ill, I want access to this uh, to this benefit. I want to just ask, I think there's only a couple of insurers that have this built into the death cover. I know MLC is one of them, is the accidental injury benefit. Uh, and I'd used it uh, for sports people before or uh, people who were medically uninsurable for TBD. And that is uh, if you are, if you lose the loose of your if you lose the use of your limbs or become disabled pretty much due to accident, the death benefit would pay out. Um, sure, it's not available if it's held within super, but any comment on that and any other industry plays that you've seen who have had any different little um, frilly things on their death cover? So, yeah, so at Zurich we have something similar. That's what uh, I thought, yeah. Yeah, so – and it is – it's a welcome – addition, particularly, Glenn, for people that may struggle to get a total and permanent disability contract. Mm. Um, so while it's not necessarily the same, at least it provides some form of benefit, uh, particularly perhaps if you're working in a high-risk occupation. Mm. Uh, that could be a or really professional welcome. sports players out on the rugby field. Or correct. Yep. Yeah, correct. Mm. Um, and I think if I think about some of the other inherent features, you know, things like a financial planning fee reimbursement uh, could certainly be one. Um, you know, while it may not mean a lot to the client, the fact that it helps an advisor be able to say, well, look, in the event of something happening, that, you know, there's not an extra cost burden to you, mm. it can actually be provided by the insurer. Yeah. I want to leave TBD last, if that's all right, Danny, because it's probably the most nuanced in this uh, lump sum discussion. Head into trauma. Trauma. Um Look, most of the time you've got cancer or you don't. Mm. Most of the time you've had a heart attack or you haven't. Most of the time you've had a stroke or you haven't. Are the policies as clear cut as that? They tend to be. Uh, what we tend to find though, if you were to, if you were sitting there trying to sort of look across different trauma products, if you were to cast an eye in say the direct space, what we tend to find is the level of severity needed for a benefit is higher than, say, a retail equivalent. 
And with that, also at the retail level, you tend to find that there can be access to partial benefits for very early stages of a specific condition like a, a you know, cancer, for example. Mm. And I think that's something which, uh, as an advisor, they really shouldn't underestimate because I think now with medical advances, people being very much self-aware about their own health, that quite often we're seeing uh, diagnoses coming through at that early stage, and it's warranting the payment of um, you know at least a partial benefit. But but I say that with a little asterisk in that you know not all uh, providers offer uh, those sort of early access even in the retail space. So be mindful if you are wanting to maybe steer your advice down that sort of partial benefit front, have a look at the product that you're recommending and make sure that they offer, you know, comparable coverage for those early stage conditions across the product suite. So not just honing in on one or two benefits, having a look at the broader sweep of conditions that are offered and and measuring them that way. If you were um, recommending a trauma policy to your sister or brother or, you know, spouse... If you were to highlight one thing in the trauma section of a PDS to make it clear to the new policy owner, what would that be? It would be cancer. And the actual definition? Yeah. So, I would be thinking about, firstly, if there's any family issues. Um, Gender is important. So, you know, for females in particular, breast cancer, you know, the claim stats are quite high. Uh, for gents, you know, it's prostate cancer, it's bowel cancer, but uh, you know, I would certainly be considering any family history, any increased um, risk exposure um, that might be relevant because that, that could certainly play a role. But in the absence of that, then look, I think cancer more broadly is an area that I'd be certainly looking at uh, because, I mean, the, the claim stats around cancer are quite significant. Mm. So things like melanoma, prostate cancer, breast cancer, bowel cancer, lung cancer tend to be sort of the top uh, the top ones. Yeah, so you're basically saying if you're a, I don't know, like cancer would obviously be a higher claimable uh, event for somebody under 40 mm. than heart disease or stroke. Correct. Yeah. yeah, correct. And I think the other thing which is always a bit of a delicate subject to be honest, is children. Mm. So, you know, the cancers that can occur in young children can be things like leukaemia, brain cancer. So I think there's certainly a role to play in at least having that discussion with clients, particularly as they're maybe preparing to have a family. Mm. Um, You know, I've got four kids myself and each of them have got their trauma and death cover contracts in place that we took out very, very early on. Because you never know, um, you know, you just hope that everything goes okay, but... Yeah, and I think for the advisors listening, uh, if you're just starting your career and, you know, you're starting to write and recommend a bit of risk, I would say as a general rule of thumb, you should be having the discussion with your clients around child trauma. Correct. Not, yeah, like it's an amazing benefit. That's awesome. But just for your own um, guilt almost. Because if you had a client with kids, you set them up, they called you and said, hey, our child has leukemia and you knew child trauma was an option to present to them, whether they took it or not, I think that guilt would eat you as a person that you could have told them about that. And it's a guilt you can avoid for what, like Mm. four to six dollars a month extra? Like It's it's very inexpensive. So you're talking one cup of coffee. So I'm not saying shove it down their throat. Mm. I'm saying 
this is an option. Put it on the it's table. Inexpensive. Yeah, and look, generally there are limits to it. So the general industry is about two hundred thousand yeah, for cover. Yeah. At Zurich, we got to five hundred thousand um, for the the traumatic conditions. But so you're not necessarily extending yourself, Danny. To your point, too much from a cost perspective. But I think just from a pure common sense approach. And of course, later on it can segue. You know, it can just sort of sidestep into uh, a cell phone policy. Yeah. So moving over to the to the tougher cover, the more nuanced cover, TPD. TPD. What's your what's the the couple of things that you would circle in the PDS or really highlight if there's two things that we're taking out with with the TPD that advisors should definitely get their clients across in the retail cover world? I think the first thing I'd be looking at is how many definitions are on offer. Mm-hmm. So while I think own and any occupation and the wording there is important. I'd be looking at how many definitions are actually available because, you know, the more definitions, the more ability the insurer has to actually apply a client situation. Because this that. is a really important point that I'm going to stress a bit because we often yep. just think, look, there's own or there's any and the other stuff, well, no one really claims on that or leans on that ever. And I think that it's really important to kind of push that a little bit and, and provide your experience on when that actually does come into play. Like, ha- have you seen that? Have you been involved in that? What's your opinion on those other definitions that sort of sit there that everyone thinks are just sort of a bit of fluff on top? Yeah, I certainly have seen them, Danny. And these are not necessarily significant levels of disability because I think if you're an advisor listing, you probably think, oh, you know, is he talking about activities of daily living? Um, you know, the veggie claws, as it was famously called. They can be significantly, like significantly disabled to get those sorts of benefits where you can't feed, toilet, bathe, dress yourself. Um, that's very much at the extreme end. But what I'm more talking about is those non-work-related definitions. So things like someone who may be a homemaker, and, you know, not able to do what it is that they do, uh, bringing up kids, shopping, cleaning, cooking. Uh, these are specific call-outs, you know, domestic duties type definition. But also things like a functional impairment, uh, a whole person impairment uh, type definition. So those that where So whether you're working or not, those things can still be assessed because we know a lot of people with, you know, even severe disabilities or profound disabilities actually want to partake in the workforce and, right. and, and lean like about over half people who actually have a severe disability want to get involved in the workforce. That's right. And keeping in mind what we're talking about here is solely outside of super. Like we, we, we I think if we're thinking about TPD inside super, it always has to fall back on that any occupation because that's what the government has mandated is that any occupation definition. So it's Always got to link back to that. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, like, if you're if you're struggling to find out what the condition of release is uh, for a TPD benefit, just look at the super condition of release for uh, incapacity, because it's got to line up to get out of super. That's right. Because and I think the reason there was this change was that there were situations where you know you had people who were suffering these horrendous the money was getting trapped. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so. You know, the insurance was paid, fantastic, but it's locked up in super. Unless you obviously have the super splitting arrangement. Correct. Yeah. But are there any sort of cautions that you would say, look, it, it's, it sounds like a great solution, but you need to be aware of with that super splitting arrangement? I think it comes back to time as well, Danny. So, your, um, so time is definitely one of them where any involvement in super is going to add some delay to that claim. Because, because they've got to be assessed under that. They've got to tick the end or cross, tick or cross the any 
definition first before they can even consider looking whether you can be released on own. Like that is something that they have to get to the bottom of. That's right. And also I think while clients may inherently think they're financially better off because they're only paying, you know, two thirds of the contract or one third of the contract cost by themselves, because there's likely to be tax on the superannuation TPD, then there's going to be a need to have to gross up that sum insured. So if an advisor works out and says, well, this client needs a million dollars worth of cover, then there's going to be an inherent need to uplift that super benefit because if that TPD contract is paid through the super environment, they're going to lose a sizable chunk to tax. And that may fall short of what that need was initially, which is paying off the mortgage, maybe modifying the home, funding the kids' education, providing an ongoing income. So I think that's a critical element that, um, you know, while it may appear to be a slight cost saving, that sum insured needs to be higher. And of course, the cost will be increased because of the tax issue inside super. And I think there's this innate um, belief that TPD, and you, you mentioned it before, is this really severe benchmark to actually get paid out on. And what I'd love you to comment on, um, Adam, is the is the partials that actually can be part of a TPD contract and, and how they work and, and how they would perhaps and, – and can they work – even in a super splitting environment under under a trustee? Like how does that all work and what's so your opinion on that? Generally partial benefits super no because um, it's got to link back to that work test. If you look outside of super and if you look across the industry, what we tend to find is that for a partial benefit, it usually links to the total and permanent loss or loss of use of something like an eye or a leg um, or a hand. So it's usually something quite significant. Um, at Zurich, of course, we have the functional impairment. So people can be assessed on their ability to walk, sit, squat, kneel, um, use a pen, use a keyboard. So that's not veggie type stuff. No, yeah. no, not at all. Um, and these can obviously be made not even considering the occupation. Again, keeping in mind outside super, we can do this. And so what that does is it gives greater access to partial benefits, which you don't tend to find in other policies across the market. So it's not so all or nothing, is it? There is a there is a middle tone. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Do all TPD policies have partial payments? Outside of super, I would say most would. Yeah, mm. I'd say most of them would. Um, inside super, obviously, would be would be very different. And this is, I guess, the themes that I want to um, really get out there to new advisors or new to risk. You've just got to be aware when you're dicking around with recommending cover inside super. You need to be aware. Your clients need to be aware. Yep. And the differences in particularly things like partials, like, yes, they're out there, but the qualifying criteria for them can be very, very different. Like, it's very different losing an arm and a leg versus being able to squat or stand or turn around. Like actually that sort of stuff really makes a huge difference to someone. And I think one of the critical elements to add to that, Danny, is that, you know, the super trustees might put uh, different requirements on someone wanting to claim a TPD inside super, something that even the advisor may not have given consideration to. So as an example, if somebody's perhaps out of work and they might only be out of work for six months or they might have returned to work, but they're only working, say, a day a week, they may not be classed as gainfully employed under the wording of that particular policy. And what that could mean is, you know, the first gate to go through might to need even qualify. To, might be like a massively significant activities of daily living type definition. So that's kind of gate one. 
uh, or you know, in some policies, even any occupation can be varied. So while the, the law says you know, it's based on education, training, experience, some may say, well, we want to apply a level of reskilling or retraining to that particular wording. So it may mean that that could be a quasi-deferral. So just to backtrack for the blonde person in the room, <laughs> so under your TPD, your TPD contract, say I'm off work because I've lost my job at the moment yep. and, I, um, a- and I do suffer a really significant event that, that renders me TPD, under some contracts um, – I actually wouldn't meet that gainful employ. I wouldn't actually qualify unless I'm hitting like that veggie clause type stuff for a claim. Yeah, you may find that getting access to the any occupation definition isn't enough and it could be purely based on a an extended period of work or, or, or absence from work. And yes, it may link to activities of daily living first and then if you cross that bridge, then it's okay, any occupation and then it can be paid out to you. Just finishing up on the TBD, and I know some insurers like um, OnePath had, you can select what, um, so there you might put Homemaker as the occupation in the quote software, yep. and then TBD, it would be the Homemaker definition. That's basically just an any occupation definition, but they've replaced the wording in the PDS with Home Duties because the other insurance company down the road they don't have a homeowner definition. They just use the any definition. So some insurers may not have a domestic duties type coverage, but what you'll find is the wording on a domestic duties definition is actually separate to an any, any occupation definition. So it links rather than someone's ability to work in their pre, you know, their education training experience. It's all about things like is unable to cook. Um, can't clean the home, can't take kids to school, can't drive a car. So it, it's, it's quite a, a different uh, approach or different wording. Um, what you may find is if that wording is sitting inside super, it's both. So you've got can't do the domestic duties, which is part one, and then to comply under the CIS law, part two is, and also cannot work in any occupation. Yeah, and, and I guess what I'm getting at is there's basically two definitions, any and own, but some insurance companies might fluff it out and just have a separate section, which is homemaker definition. Correct. Which is basically just an any definition. Or the functional stuff. Yeah. Or functional, or person impairment. Yep. So that's definitely something I'd be recommending is just having a look for how many specific definitions there are on offer, not just own or any, but looking beyond that. And I would say, like, you're out there in your advisor land, if you recommend you know, a lot of Zurich or a lot of um, AIA or a lot of BT or a lot of MLC or whoever you're using most, because I know it's efficient to sometimes use the same insurance company and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. When was the last time you picked up the bloody PDS yourself and had a read? Because if you don't understand inherently how this works, it's going to be really hard for you to convey it across to the client so they understand in a simple way. I think if I think about what is practical... Uh, and a real value add, it is often in the fine print. It's often in those documents. Uh, They may seem onerous, but they can be so easy to read, particularly if you know what to look for. You know, Mm. we spoke about terminal uh, death cover and terminal illness. Just get the electronic version of the PDS, type in the word suicide, hit enter, and just have a look at what the treatment is. Mm. And uh, you might be surprised. Why was it 13 months? I did know, but I forget. Is it because after the first term or was it like a based on like 
Commission clawback or something. What was the 13 months? Do we know? That's a, that's a good question. It's a bit weird, Look, isn't it? Look, I, I don't know 100%. I have a feeling it's so that there is a, a sort of a period of, um, you know, people are not necessarily waiting for that year. Oh, yeah. So, before. they've got, actually got to renew for the second year. So, like, they're committed to the policy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was something like that. I thought I was, like, being cynical. I was like, oh, back in the day when the advisors did it, they wanted their... <laughs> 150% commission not clawed back. Uh, that's unlike <laughs> you to be cynical, Glenn. No. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a debrief on everything lump sum, everyone. Yeah, so what? Uh, my challenge to you listening, what can you take away from this? What are you going to go and pick up a PDS? What are you going to go and look at? I want you to go back to your own insurance policy. Go back to your own policy that you have on your life. And be familiar with it, and maybe make a, a, a comment into the group around like what what is what is the thing that you're going to everyone can keep you accountable that you're going to actually do from these discussions. You know what is what is the thing you're going to look into or understand if we can all just take kind of one little insight every time we have these discussions and our knowledge collectively grows mm. pretty powerfully. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Adam. And, Thank you, guys. And, it's been fun. Yeah, giving us all your wisdom on all things product. And thanks for all your questioning, Glenn. Yeah. Chat to you all soon, hey? Yeah, and if you are listening, I just hope this has been an encouragement for your career mm. as an advisor or as an upcoming risk specialist or whatever you want it to be. Uh, what can you do today to go that one step further? And if that's picking up a PDS, that's awesome. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are in the advice world and you've made it this far, my question to you is, who can you forward this episode to? Thank you so much for listening. This was made possible because of My Risk Advisor. You can head over to the Facebook group, My Risk Advisor, and join in on the conversation.